before we get into the message this morning, I want to say I like being here. I, I, I like, do you, it's good to be together. I, 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 I want to ask you, would you think of some of the good things that you have in your life? Just for a minute. I ask us to give time to that because it's just so easy to give time to the opposite. What we don't have. We live in a time and in a place where we're obsessed with what we don't have yet. With what we want to go and get. And, and not because any of us really chooses, but we live in an environment really that forces us always to be looking at what we don't have, and someone else does. And then we get caught up always in wanting more. And we have so much. And we have so much that's good. And it is, in my mind, it's time for us here, and, and I really think uh, for the, the time and place where we find ourselves to, to learn to say enough and we'll only do that when we begin to see the epidemic that has us in its grips, which is the epidemic of greed. And I don't want to point fingers at all today, unless they're also pointed at me. But I want to identify with you this morning a sort of all-consuming feeling that, that has our whole world in, in effect, or at least the world where we find ourselves in its grips, and that is the habit that I want us to consider this morning, uh, the habit of spending too much time acquiring stuff. And uh, this morning, I'm going to lay it all out right at the start, the big ideas. And then we'll get into our learning together. Uh, so here it is. We want things because of what they promise to give us. Uh, they promise to make us secure and to give us comfort and rest, and to make us uh, joyful. And all three of those things are great to want. We were actually made to, to live secure lives. We were made to have rest every day. We were made to feel joy and experience pleasure. And we want things because they promised to give us that. Now, because possessions promised, promised to give us those things, we trade in the single most important commodity that we have in order to get things. We give our time. And every second we give is gone forever. We can't get it back. And the reason this is a problem is because things never deliver on their promises. Uh, what I mean is we get a possession and it actually does feel good but then the feeling fades as quickly as it came. And now we're in a place where we say, I want to feel like that again, or I want to feel like that more. And so we go ahead and get another possession and it satisfies us for a bit, but then the need is greater than it was before because enough is always one step ahead of us. Do you know that? It's just right there. And then we get there, but now it's a little further on. And this is a recipe for addiction. And addiction is not too strong a word to use for the drive to have more things. What I mean is, we experience an ever-growing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure. 
Think of it, I get something and it feels good and now I want that feeling more but the next time I get that thing, it doesn't feel as good as it used to and so I need more of that thing. And my strategy becomes to just that, get more and more and more until I've traded my whole life for things. And when that happens, these two things always happen. First, I miss real life. I lose my life trying to get things. It's gone. Time doesn't come back. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that I fail to become useful in the world in the way that God wants me to. And this I can say about every one of you. And, and wherever you are in faith, I believe this. God wants you to be useful in the world and your having been born in a place of unprecedented abundance means you have a unique capacity to bless the world. You hear that? And some of you right now are like, oh yeah, other people here, but not me. All of us compared to most of the world have more than we could possibly use. And the temptation for us, it will be because of where we find ourselves, to give our lives to the possession of things. And this habit is a habit that needs to be, uh, we need to be knocked free of it so that we no longer go on the path of greed, but instead we go on the opposite path, the path of generosity. And Jesus himself taught about this subject an awful lot, and so we're going to let him be our teacher this morning. Uh, this one is going to be a time where you and I together stand before him and listen to what he has to say. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, one place where Jesus speaks about the subject of greed, and it's not the only place, provides a great picture of a path away from this habit that we are all gripped by. And if you would follow along with me uh, on your own, Luke chapter 12, there's a saying of his in verse 15 that I want to start with. It's going to be up here in a moment, but here's what Jesus says, and I want to consider it with you. Jesus says this, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In that single statement of Jesus, there are two parts. There's a warning, and then there is the principle upon which that warning is based. The warning is take care and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Here and in many other places in the New Testament, greed is unequivocally rejected as a path that always leads away from God and into misery. Men and women do the, the most horrendous things to each other and to people in the world around them because they are motivated by the desire to have far more than they need. Greed is a root of all kinds of evil. Some of you know that saying, don't you? And you don't need to know the Bible or believe in it at all to see how horrendous greed is in terms of what it does to people, not only those who are harmed by the greed of others, but even by the emptiness that every greedy person feels in their heart, even when they get everything they ever wanted. That's not the kind of thing you say in a church like this and everybody shouts, amen. <laughs> in this case, the warning against greed, listen now is not to condemn a person, but to help them. I want you to understand that Jesus did not come to condemn, but to save. And every time Jesus opened his mouth, it was to speak words that every man and woman needed to hear. 
And if they were apt to defend themselves against what he said, it would only be to their own harm to ignore him. I promise you. So if this stings and you think, how will this hit me? Listen, if it's from Jesus, it will be good for you. In this case, greed is an evil that is not only denounced by him, but by all who speak of it in the New Testament. All, every time it's in a list of evils, greed is in there. And Paul says it, and the other apostles speak of it. But in this case, there's a principle from which Jesus speaks of greed. That's the second part of his sentence, his statement. You see it, he says, beyond your guard for, for a specific reason, notice, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Beneath Jesus' warning about greed is a specific vision of where real life is. And what Jesus is saying to those who will listen is this. Life is about more than things. And you must heed my warning because things are so attractive and they're so powerful in their allure. Their promises are so captivating that you will give up your life to get things, but life does not consist in things. Jesus wants to teach everyone who listen to be on their guard against that unique temptation to spend too much time acquiring stuff. Because enough is never enough, and Jesus knows it. Now, Jesus didn't just teach to have his words written in a book. The Bible records what he really said in real life. Knowing his setting here actually enriches what he had to say. I want you to use your imagination with me now. Uh, uh, forget that we're here at Renaissance. Picture yourself with me and we're in a great crowd gathered around the teacher Jesus. It's outside. And in the open air, Jesus is teaching about the subject of hypocrisy among religious leaders. Does that sound like an old-fashioned or a new lesson? It sounds new to me. He then goes on to teach about confessing him in public. Be, be confident, he says. Don't be false like these religious leaders. Be confident in following me. There's a pause in his teaching when a man hurries up out of the crowd and interrupts him. Jesus, Jesus, he says, would you help me out? Would you arbitrate between me and my brother? Our father has died and my brother won't give me the fair share of the property that belongs to me. Will you help us divide it up? Does that sound like a small thing to interject in a moment like Jesus' teaching? A dispute over stuff because dad has died and now these two brothers can't get along and they're ready to end their relationship with each other over the stuff. And Jesus has become for these brothers in this moment useful insofar as he might be the one, listen now, who formalizes their division from each other. Jesus says to him, who made me the judge, your arbiter between you and your brother? Now the truth is Jesus is the judge. But the lie is that this man believes that Jesus is useful because he can help this man divide up from his brother. And what Jesus knows is this man doesn't need a judge. He needs his heart changed because he's got the wrong idea about the importance of stuff. Because he's ready to lose his relationship with his own kindred over things that are gonna just turn to dust when he dies. And so Jesus says to everybody who listen, right in front of this guy who's asked this question, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Do you know how desperately we need to hear that message today? And I don't mean to expand it 
to our consumeristic society, I mean to tell you that I'm absolutely confident that right now some of you are in fights with your siblings because when your parents died, you still haven't settled out how to divide up the stuff. Am I right? Someone right now is sitting next to a sibling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's bringing this up in church. <laughs> I once had a conversation with a woman who was proud of how principled she was when she explained that she hadn't talked to her sister for 10 years. She said, when our mother died, my sister wanted the antique chest of drawers that I'm sure my mother wanted me to have. I have it now and I haven't talked to her for a decade. And she was proud of that. And I'm telling you, I've heard that story as a pastor a dozen times. Because we have, listen, because we have the wrong idea about where life comes from. Because we've been tricked that having stuff will make us secure. Because we've been lied to. And the lie says that when you have more, then you'll finally be able to rest. And we're driven. And we forsake rest because of that lie. Because, because things will finally make you joyful. And we get them and they feel good until they're obsolete. And then a new model comes out and that will make us joyful until that one's obsolete. Right? Jesus not only tells this warning and this principle, but he, he further develops his lesson by, by painting a picture for, for the crowd. And I want to show you that because I want us, all of us, to learn. And listen now, one thing I want to identify before we continue. In moments like this, when we're talking about material possessions and money and greed, all of us are apt to find someone in our mind who we compare favorably to, to defend ourselves against the kind of challenge that might come, to get us off the hook, as it were. And I'm, I know this, every one of us can find someone, a reference group to put in our head that will make us look pretty good about how we're using our time and our money. All of us can do it. I want you all on the hook. And I'm serious. And I want to be on the hook too, all of us. Because Jesus wants us there for our own good. And that's why he said, be on your guard against every kind of greed. And maybe it's not money that you're greedy for. Maybe the thing you want to possess is fame or acclaim or praise or more and more love from another person and you desire this thing. Listen up. Here's what Jesus taught to that crowd as he had them right there, all of them on the hook. He turned from that man and his greed for possessions and looked at everyone and here's the story he told. This is in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced abundantly and he thought to himself what should I do for I have no place to store my crops a familiar enough picture to the people that Jesus spoke to they lived in an agrarian culture you had to eat what was grown that season if you wanted to live and in the places where Jesus taught everyone knew there were some landowners who had more than others and when they had a good year that meant everyone got to eat but in this case this man's abundance strikes him as an opportunity and instead of taking his goods to market he says well what shall I do with all of the abundance that I have produced in this year it's a reasonable question. You might think, well, why doesn't he sell it? Because he'd make so much more money if he did that. This man's obviously rich already. He can make even more. Oh, but his restraint in what he does with his abundance reveals a wisdom that is exceptional. This guy's smart. 
Listen, before I continue, can I say something? This is extremely important because I know there are a lot of people in here who are super smart and exceptional at business. And if they hear in anything I say or Jesus taught a condemnation of those gifts, they hear the wrong thing. It is an awesome gift that God gives some to be very skilled at making a lot of money at using their brain and their intuition and their energy to bring in a lot. The question is not whether a person achieves a high degree of success financially. The real question is what do they do with it? How do they relate to the abundance? Is it a thing which they use to find their rest and their security and their joy or is it something different? In this man's case, we see very plainly as Jesus unfolds the story that this man is skilled in making money, which is good, but he also is 100% in the grips of greed. The habit of giving everything to having more for himself. Here's how we know. Look at how he answers this question of what shall I do? This is verse 16. Uh, excuse me. This is verse 18. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, to some of us, that may seem like a weird decision, uh, not a fiscally wise choice. Why tear down barns? That costs money. Why not just build new ones? Oh, he's smart, smarter than us. Ready? He uses up land that could be used to produce more food if he builds a barn on it. He can go up and have more storage without losing production capacity. And not only that, listen, you might say, well, why didn't he sell it? Here's why. In his environment, if he floods the market with an excess of goods, that lowers demand, which makes it so he can't get as high a price for what he brings to market. If he withholds it, then he can charge more because he's the supplier in the area. Do you see that? Someone right now is like, ooh, I got a new idea for business. <laughs> this guy has the power to manipulate the markets to earn more. If there's no rain next year, he can charge even more for the stuff he stored up. Guess who benefits? Him. Guess who suffers? All of the hungry people in that area who can't grow anything and have to depend on low prices in order to get enough. But here in the story that Jesus tells is a man who increases his own abundance at the expense of others. Why does he do this? Because he is in the grips of greed. He has believed that good life comes from more possessions. And that's not something we have to guess about. What he says next makes it abundantly plain that that's exactly what's happening. In verse 19, we hear what he says to himself, and I will say to my soul, that's an indication that what's really going on is this man's trying to figure out how to make his soul okay. He's trying to be all right on the inside. And what he says to his soul is, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. You know what that means? Soul, you have security. He looks at his heart and says, I finally does, I've finally done what is required to make it so my heart itself is secure from now on. I've taken the steps I needed to be secure inside. He goes on, relax, he says to his soul. That is, go ahead and rest. I finally got enough, and it's just about time for us to sit back and relax at last. Eat, drink, and be merry, he says to himself. That is, have joy You've always wanted it. You're about to get it. You've worked hard for all of these years. You've been shrewd and careful. You've built up enough. And now once you've got it all stored, you'll be able finally to have security. You'll be able to have rest. And you'll be able to have joy. Those three things are what every one of us wants. 
There's nothing wrong at all with wanting them. The problem here is this man has begun to seek those things in the wrong place. And what he needs is to hear Jesus' warning. Be on your guard against greed of all kinds. Remember why? Because life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. It's so hard for us to believe that. It is. I know this. It's so easy to feel like I don't have enough and once I get just a bit more, then I'll be settled and secure and everything will be good on the inside. Am I saying the truth? Okay, I, well, at least one person's with me. It's, it's maybe a hard one for us to say around here, but it's true. What happens next in Jesus' story, I think, is un, unparalleled in its brilliance. Jesus has described this man for the whole crowd, and then, before everyone in the crowd, he brings God into his story and lets God pass judgment on this man. Look at what happens next. This is verse 20. But God said to him, this man, You fool! This very night, your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You fool is the divine verdict on this man's life. I don't know what you think about what happens after you die, but imagine for a moment that what really happens is you stand before God and then he passes judgment on you. In this case, God's judgment on this man and his whole endeavor, all of his success is you fool. In Greek, it's one single word. It's the word mindless. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine God's judgment being passed on you and your whole life and saying, mindless? There's a reason why he has God saying this. It's not because Jesus is mean. Jesus loves you more than you could ever ask or imagine. Jesus loves this man who's in a fight with his brother over their possessions more than the man knows. Jesus is going to die for the guy who asks him this question, for everyone who listens that day, and for all of us. That's how much he loves us. And so when he says, this is how it will look to God if this is your life, it's not to condemn us or to make us feel bad. It is to shake us free of the most dangerous path that we ourselves will be tempted to walk down, which is the path to give too much time to acquiring stuff. The man is a fool for two reasons, according to Jesus' story. The first is, right as he gets to the finish line of hard work, and right before he finally gets to enjoy it, he dies. And in effect, Jesus wants to say, as long as you're giving up life today for life tomorrow, you're a fool, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, I on Tuesday was in the, the study back here with uh, the content team, some of the staff members who work at Renaissance talking about this message. In the morning, I went to my office and there on my phone was a text message from my wife that one of our friends who we used to do ministry with years ago, who's 10 years younger than us, just died suddenly over the weekend. Life disappears like that. And in this story, the man's a fool because he gave his life up for possessions and never got to enjoy the fruit of his labor. And he's a fool for that reason. There's a more profound and deep rule, uh, reason why he's a fool according to Jesus' story. Do you see the way the phrasing there is that talks about his death? This very night your life is being demanded of you. That verb in Greek is a verb from the world of finance. It is the phrase which a lender speaks to a person who has received a loan at the very moment that the loan uh, repayment is required. Think about that. 
If I give you something to work with, some capital, and I expect you to trade with it and put it to good use in your world, and then I go away, when I come back and I want that loan back, I say the loan is being demanded of you. And what Jesus wants to teach here is the man's mistake is not only that he thought the possessions and the grain in his barn belonged to him, his mistake is that he thought his life belongs to him. And the truth about every man and every woman is even their very lives are on loan from God. You do not belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. If it feels like a challenge to imagine that all of the money that you have in your bank account And all of the things that you possess don't really belong to you. They belong to God. I want to increase the challenge and tell you that the brain with which you're thinking doesn't even belong to you. Everything we have and are is God's. Everything. And listen now, again, I'm not telling you this to make you feel guilty or to condemn anyone, but to wake you up to the truth that everything you have and you are belongs to God. And until you begin to use your life as if it is on loan from him, you will always be pursuing life in the wrong places. You will give in like that to the temptation to give all of your time to acquiring stuff and it will never, ever meet the promises that it makes, ever. The outcome after this man's life is pronounced to be that of a fool in Jesus' storytelling, is one last editorial from Jesus on what the scene that he just painted. This is verse 21. I imagine the crowd was stunned and silent. And then Jesus adds, So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Jesus is reflecting on the man who he's painted and said, every person who stores up treasures for themselves like this man is a fool. And that is, that is the habit of giving ourselves to acquiring things. Contrast that with the opposite. Those who are rich toward God. And I want you to see with me in a moment what that path looks like because that's the path away from the habit which destroys us, which is the path we're invited on. It's the path away from greed toward generosity. Think for me, with me for one more minute about the man in the story. Do you remember the the question that God asked him after telling him he was a fool, whose will all that you saved up, who who will that go to? Do you see how ironic that question is? Remember, Jesus is telling this to two men who are fighting about their father's inheritance. And strictly speaking, the answer to God's question to that rich man is, it will go to my children. Guess what his children are going to do with all of that grain in the barn? They're going to fight about it. That's what's going to happen. That will happen unless, listen, unless this rich man decides in this, the moment which is behind him, unless we learn to walk away from that path and instead of storing up treasures for ourselves, we practice lives that are rich toward God. What would they look like? I'm going to be very concrete. If we ask that question in relationship to the man in the story, what would it look like for him if he were rich toward God instead of storing up treasure for himself? The answer is very concrete. Instead of storing the grain in his barn, he could have chosen to store it in the hungry stomachs of the children and families who were poor in the area where he lived. He was free to make that choice, and he should have. He should have for two reasons. 
partly because it would have saved him from the corrosive lie that getting more will make you feel better. And more importantly, I think in this story, because it would save the hungry and vulnerable from the abuses of power by those who have more than they need, who are thereby made responsible by God himself for using their abundance to help in the world around them, which is desperate. And if you're right now thinking, if only I were wealthy, I would do more like that. You have more than enough. I'm telling you, all of us do. All of us. I have to say this to myself too because I'm also tempted by the people I know who have more than I do to excuse myself from the demands of this story, which are that I ought to share in my abundance. So what would it look like for you individually to be rich toward God with whatever you have? The answer is very direct to give away some of what you have to people who have less. And you can do that and you should do that in the church that you're a part of as that church grows in, in influence and in power and seeks to bless the world around in Jesus' name, the more people who are giving to it, the more good it can do. Am I talking about Renaissance Church? Yes, I am. Not Renaissance Church only. Some of you are visitors. Some of you are not sure about church. You also should give away some of your money out there in the world. I was tempted this week as I did research to barrage you with a powerful array of statistics about how little Americans give away, about how little Christians give away, about how many Christians who declare themselves to be followers of Jesus give literally nothing away in a single year. How much good could be done if Christians as a whole those who identify themselves as Christians, tithe in this country what we could do with all that money, I decided to narrow it down to one single stat for you. In the United States, in 2018, it is estimated that we will spend $30 billion on self-storage units. And that industry is is projected to increase at 2.3% every year. Literally, $30 billion spent on having too much stuff and it doesn't even fit in our houses and putting it somewhere else. An aid organization that works with global hunger, with poor water supplies and sanitation, and and works to try to address diseases which can be cured, but are not cured because there's not enough money in most of the world. Estimate that... All of those ills could be eradicated over the course of five years if only we could dedicate $25 billion toward that problem. So if we gave up storing our stuff for one year, we could get rid of all that stuff. And if you're right now, you're like an investor, like my business is self-storage, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The fact is, there are dozens of other things that I could describe that we Americans spend our money on that would tear out your heart to think that we would give so much to that when there's so much need everywhere else. And listen, the church itself is an organization which is underfunded. Uh, It's estimated that $1 billion could fund foreign mission work for all of the churches that want to do it for five years. That's just a a, a one-thirtieth of what's uh, going into the storage units. So what should you do? Here, every one of you as a mature adult should look at your own self in your own way and decide, 
can I live with less? And where can I begin to divest myself in order to help others in the world around me? There are some of us who, who are, have so little, it, it's unthinkable. There are others of us who have so much, it should be as easy as pie. But we should do it. And some of us and some of you should start to give more generosity than you ever have to the church that you're a part of. If it's Renaissance, do it. If it's another organization that you believe in that helps in the world around you, do it. Here's my challenge to you. Decide in the year ahead, to, if, you're, if you've not practiced giving, to live on 98% of what you have and set aside 2% to give away and do that this year and then next year, up it to 4% so that you don't have a, a jarring adjustment and do that until you get to 10%. Have you heard the word tithe? Many of you heard the word tithe. There's a book written by someone I know. His name is Christian Smith. It's called Passing the Plate. Why American Christians Give So Little? It's, it's a very objective review. The answer that he gives is actually quite good. It's not because they don't want to give. Most of them have adjusted their lifestyle up to the level which they can barely afford so they have nothing to give. So start scaling back on your expenses so that you can give more. And listen, I'm not afraid to say this. Start giving more at Renaissance Church. Because what we have to do in the world is and will be rich toward God and not toward ourselves. Let me add this next challenge. That's to you, all of you individually. Here's the challenge to the church that I'm employed at, okay? I've sat with the staff at this church who work here and the elders who are constantly praying for and considering how to make this place more faithful. And early on, we started to say, you know, Renaissance as a church hasn't really given a lot of money away out there. We've done good things in the toy drive and the food drive, which are magnificent. We've done benevolence here within the church, also really good. But we feel like maybe we should start doing more. And, and someone's clapping. Go for it. I said, as I sometimes do without thinking things through, let's give 10% away as a church. I, th I sometimes do that. And then someone said, you know that we're operating at a deficit, and we are. And, and by the way, all of the details that you need, I want to share them tonight. So I do hope you'll come for the vision meeting. But for now, I'll tell you, it's true that we're operating as a church at a deficit. We spend more than is given because we have some reserve. And someone said, maybe we should wait until we even that out. And then we began to think, how, how, what would Jesus say if he was sitting around this table with us and that was our strategy? And it came clear pretty quick. I think Jesus would say, if you want me to supply you with enough for you, start giving even out of your need to others around you. And so I said, the elders and I started saying this, the staff and I, can we decide in this year, in 2017, to give 2% of whatever is given to this church toward benevolence to extreme need in our church, in the community around us, and even in the world beyond our borders? Can we decide to do that? And people said, yes, let's do it. Let's do it only on one condition, that we decide to go to four next year and six, and we get to 10, and then when we're 10, we can say, what next? And so that is what this church is going to do to be rich toward God. What if we don't have enough for ourselves? That would be a great problem to face because we were too generous. Wouldn't it? Here, let me close like this. The need in the world around us is magnificent. The abundance in our own midst, in, right here, is also magnificent. And I can't think of anything else than that that abundance is meant to be seen by us as an opportunity 
to be brilliant for the Lord who gave himself for us. In one place, Jesus' act is described as he was the one who became poor so that we might become rich. And I believe that we are rich so that we can divest ourselves for good in the world around us, not so that we would look good, so that God himself would look good through our generosity. And here is the invitation to every one of us to walk away from the path of greed, the path of spending too much time on acquiring stuff, onto the path of generosity, personally and corporately. That is my invitation to all of us. Let's pray together that God would make us faithful in this way. God, we need you. We need you to have our eyes cleared up about where real life is. We need you to save us from the temptation to give our time and our energy and all of ourselves to stuff. We need you to free us from conflicts and disputes over things so that we see our brothers as more important than the things we might get. And we need you to help us see our abundance as an opportunity to serve you by blessing the world around us. Would you make each of us individually into people who are more generous for having been here this morning and listened to Jesus? Would you also make this church a church that is more brilliant in generosity so that we can use the abundance we have to bless the world around us in your name? God, use us to make a difference, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.